Father, we are grateful to be here on your Sabbath, and we ask for your Holy Spirit to be here. I ask, Father, that you would speak, that, Father, your words would have power. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. If you had just one message that you could give to those you love before something terrible was about to happen to them, what would you tell them? What would you warn, would you warn them? Would you give them counsel? I'm assuming that is a yes. Most people are aware that the world we're living in is vastly changing. From a world perspective, we are more interconnected internationally on an individual basis than we have ever been imagined before. With thank you to the World Wide Web, social media, which have changed the face of our society. The population of our earth is mushrooming. In 1800, after about 6,000 years, there were about 1 billion residents on our planet. Now, 220 years later, there is about 8 billion. Changes are happening to the political foundations of our world. Changes are happening in society with the love of many people waxing cold. From a religious perspective, much of what we're seeing is a sign that Jesus' coming is very soon. It can't be too far off. So what then is the message from God for this planet as we are solidly living in what the Bible calls the time of the end? What's the message that God has for us when we are about to face a crisis? I'd like to know what it is that's so important that God would share with us. What would be the final words God would give? I've entitled this Earth's Final Warning. I got really excited. I was trying to, I was putting this together. I thought, oh, this should not be a problem at all. And by the time I finished the first message, I realized I had three pages of information and said, okay, instead of doing all three today, we'll just do one. Is that okay with you? Um, and so we will take these in bite size so we can grasp them and digest them. So what we're going to be looking at is Revelation chapter 14. Please turn there with me. Revelation chapter 14. And we're going to be looking at verse 6. Revelation 14, verse 6. Verses 6 through 12 are the final messages from God for this planet. Uh, if you look in Revelation chapter 14 and verse 14, you see right after these messages are given, we see Jesus coming on a white cloud with a golden crown on his head for the harvest of this earth. So contextually speaking, if over here I have Jesus coming on a white cloud with a golden crown on his head for the harvest, the message that's right before is the message proceeding up to that event. Here are the messages, if I could to make them simple. Message number one, a call to action. Message number two, a declarative statement, beware. And a third one, a warning. 
call to action, declaring something, and a warning. Those are the three messages that are given. The call to action is what we'll be looking at today. It's simple. Fear God, give glory to Him, for the hour of His judgment has come, and worship Him that made heaven and earth, the seas and the fountains of waters. A simple message, but a message that is for us today. Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6 says this, Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having what? So when I looked at this angel with the everlasting gospel, when I looked at this angel, I wonder, who is the angel? Is it a heavenly messenger? Oftentimes in the Bible, and you see this several times in Revelation, angels are used to describe messengers. They could be human messengers. These angels are clearly being asked to give a message that God asked his people to give in Matthew chapter 28, 19 and 20, the gospel going to the entire world. So what we're looking at is a message that's supposed to be given by us, and I'm going to call us, us, the Christian church, right? Living at the end of time. It says they have the everlasting gospel. Um, I'm glad it just doesn't say the gospel. It says the everlasting gospel. Why everlasting? Why, are they have a, why would they describe it as an everlasting gospel? Has it been around for a while? Always. Will it be around for a while? Yes. See, the gospel doesn't change. Anytime you see a gospel being changed, it's no longer the gospel. So there's a gospel that was given in the early Christian church, and the same message is being given by this, me- this messenger here. Everlasting gospel. You know, um, what was the message in the early church? It was the good news about Jesus. That he was our risen Savior. He was our mediating high priest. And he would be our soon coming king. The message for us today to give is that message. The everlasting gospel. This next one, though, I'm going to push you a little bit. I hope you're ready to do a little bit of Bible study in Revelation. It says that they are preaching to those who do what? Dwell where? To those that dwell on the earth. Okay, if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 10. Who are those who dwell on the earth? Revelation chapter 6, verse 10, and you say, well, that's obvious. It's me. Let's see what the Bible says. Revelation chapter 6, verse 10. This is the cry of the martyrs underneath the altar in the fifth seal. It says, And they cried with a loud voice, saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who what? Dwell on the earth. So those who dwell on the earth in the context of Revelation 6.10 are actually negative. You see that. Uh, These are those who are against God's people. Let's look at another one. Revelation chapter 11 and verse 10. Revelation 11 and verse 10. Speaking of the two witnesses that are killed in this chapter, after their death, it says, And those who, what? 
dwell on the earth, will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So when the two witnesses are done and they're dead, uh, the two witnesses for God are dead, those who dwell on the earth are celebrating. Would you say they are for God or against God in this verse? These are those who are against God. Let's look at another one, Revelation chapter 13 and verse 14. Revelation chapter 13, verse 14. Speaking of a second beast that rises up against the fight against God's people at the end of time. And it says, and he deceives those who what? Dwell on the earth. Those who dwell on the earth are those who are deceived by the second beast. So now we have a, a description. Those who dwell on the earth oftentimes in Revelation are not really used in a positive way. I'll look at one more. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 8. Revelation chapter 17, verse 8. Speaking of the end time beast that carries the harlot woman, the Bible says this. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. And I, I wanted to emphasize that. I did not slow down. It says those who dwell on the earth are the ones that marvel. So when you see the phrase those that dwell on the earth in the book of Revelation, oftentimes, many times, most of the time, it's speaking of those who are not God's people. Now, let's go back to where we saw it originally in our context of today's message. Revelation chapter 14, verse 6 says, they have the everlasting gospel to preach to those who what? Dwell on the earth. So who's the message for? The message is for those who are not followers of God. The good news is not to be kept in the church. It's not to be left inside of church buildings on Sabbath. The good news is to be given to those who don't know God. That is the context of this message. God doesn't want his people to keep the truth in themselves. The very fact that we have possession of the truth means we must share it. That is the picture we get here in Revelation chapter 14. It says, to clarify who is those that dwell on the earth, it says to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So I, I always enjoy being here at Cape Cod for this reason. We have every nation. No, we don't have every nation. But we have quite a few, don't we? Uh, we, we looked at our ancestry as listed in our, as a scene in our congregation here. We have at least 15 to 20 countries represented. That's awesome. That is fantastic. And so this, this is proof in a way that this message is going out right now to every nation, kindred, tongue, and people. Again, I'm quoting from the King James there. It's worldwide, but there's more than that. Remember, when we're looking at it, we're looking within the context of Revelation, and then, of course, oftentimes it refers back to the Old Testament when you're studying the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 10, verse 11, uses almost a similar phrase. Revelation chapter 10, verse 11. 
In Revelation 10, verse 11, we looked at this. Unfortunately, it's been a while since we've been in Revelation. Last time we looked at Revelation 10, we saw that there was something that took place. An angel standing with one foot in the sea and one foot in the land takes a little book that's open in his hand and he gives it to John. John eats that little book and it's what in his mouth? Sweet in his mouth and it's what in his stomach? It's bitter. And then after he eats this little book, which when we studied it before, we realized clearly it's connected with the prophecies of the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. When he ate it, after that happened, it said this in verse 11. And he said to me, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. There is a call to prophesy again, and it's specifically to many peoples, nations, tongues, and kings. That experience was in the early 1800s. We are now living in a time where that prophecy must be going out. Prophetically speaking, based upon the prophetic timeline laid out in the book of Revelation. And then it says this, Revelation chapter 14. We have walked through this introduction, if you will. We haven't even got to the first message yet, but we're walking through this introduction to this first angel. It says that he's going to, actually verse 7 says, he will say with a loud voice. Okay, this is just a little interesting point. Uh, notice verse 7. What kind of voice does he have? Loud voice. Loud voice. Notice verse 8. What kind of voice does he have? Doesn't say, does it? Then you notice verse 9. What kind of voice? Loud voice. So first angel is given with a loud voice. Third angel is given with a loud voice. And the second angel is kind of quiet. That's a whole other study for another time. Shouldn't do that, I know. But it's, it's, it, I wanted to pull it out for this reason. There is a distinction that's being made in whether it's loud or not. And when you have this here being given with a loud voice, it means it's given with certainty. No questions asked. This is truth. You know, how many of you have ever um, wanted to yell out something and then you're just about to yell out something and then you question, maybe I, am I saying the right thing? And then what happens to your voice? Yeah, blah, 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 blah. Uh, we get quiet. When we're uncertain of what we're saying, most of us quiet down. And if we don't, we probably should, right? If you're not certain of what you're saying, we need to calm it down. That's what we do. But when we're confident, and I have seen some confident people around here, say it. If you really feel it, you say it. You believe it, right? There is confidence in this angel, believing what he is about to say. I have this really neat ringtone to wake me up in the morning. I don't know if any of you are familiar with the, um, uh, a piece. Uh, it's, called, uh, it's, it's been called many names, but I call it Gabriel's Oboe. Some of you are familiar with the song. It's a fantastic oboe uh, solo. And so I have it on my phone, and it starts out with a little bit of a drum. Ba-ba-ba-bum. Bum-bum. Ba-ba-ba-bum. It's very quiet. And when that starts playing, sometimes I wake up before the oboe comes with. Da-da-da-da-da. So before it comes in, I can wake up. 
turn it off before I wake up anyone else in my room. I was all excited about that until somebody, I won't mention their name, but they were younger than me and younger than my wife, changed the song on my alarm. And man, when it went off full volume, and I forget what it was, it was some like trumpet brigade that was charging something. I jumped up, and everyone laughs. I wasn't. But loudness is meant to wake you up. And that's what that did for me. This is not some da-da-da-da, dum-dum-dum, da-da-da. That's not what's taking place with the first angel's message. It's actually meant to be given with what kind of voice? A loud voice, and it was given. There's a historical context that's going on here that I think Josh has shared. So I'm kind of going over some of the theological aspects now. All right, what is the message? It's a call to action. Fear God, give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and the earth, the seas and the fountains of the waters. Three-part message that is being laid out here. What does it mean to fear God? So if I see God, I run this way as fast as I possibly can. Is that what it means to fear God? In this context, fear can be taken two different ways. One of the other words for fear is the word reverence, right? Um, Reverence is not a word we use a lot today. So what's another word for it? Let me put it this way. Respect and obey. Respect. Have you ever met a person who when they stand around you, you want to just treat them with respect? You stand up a little bit taller. You don't say the stuff you would normally say. The things that you do at your own home, you wouldn't do in front of them. You know what I mean? That's a picture in a way of respect. Um, And this idea in the Bible is that we are to respect God, respect Him and obey Him. Um, God is not, and I'm going to be careful how I say this, God longs with all of His heart to be our friend. He is and describes Himself as our Father. And yet at the same time, God is not one of us. I don't come before God and say, hey, Bao, what's up? I don't do that with God. I do that with my friends. But he's a different kind of friend. There's a respect factor because of his position, if I can use that. And so there is this, now this idea of, of, of fear, I'd like to connect it with a few things, if you don't mind. Can you turn with me to Genesis chapter 22? Genesis chapter 22, and there's a few words the Bible connects with fear, and again, I'm using the Old Testament. Uh, I have no problem using the Old Testament as I'm studying Revelation for this reason, and I always like to remind us as we study it. Revelation, more than two-thirds of the book of Revelation, is taken in part or whole from the Old Testament. Revelation is constantly just an overview of the Old Testament, pulling out key points. So Revelation chapter 22 and verse 12. The Bible says, And he said, Oh, this is God speaking to Abraham right before Abraham is about to sacrifice his son Isaac. Do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him, for now I know that you do what? 
You fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. To fear God is to do what God asks when it hurts. That's what it means to fear God, to do what God asks when it hurts. Here's another one, Psalm chapter 22, verse 23. Psalm 22 and 23. There are multiple verses for each of these. I am, I'm pointing out just a few for our sake of time. Psalm 22 and verse 23. You who fear the Lord, what will you do? Praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him, all you offspring of Israel. Those who fear God are those who praise him. I use the word worship. So when you follow God and do what he asks, that's fear. When you worship and praise him, that's also described in the Bible as fear. Or it's an action of those who fear. Let me clarify. And one last one. Proverbs chapter 9 and verse 10. This is probably one of the ones that come to most of our minds when we think about what does it mean, what is the fear of God. Chapter 9 and verse 10. The Bible says, the fear of the Lord is the what? Beginning of wisdom. And our world today I've had the privilege of going and doing some graduate work. I have a graduate degree. I'm not telling you that to say anything except the fact that I've spent some time in college. And I have found in college, oftentimes, the more you challenge God, the more intellectual you appear. Even in Christian colleges sometimes. You know what, I'm not quite sure if Habakkuk got it right there. Maybe Exodus is just, you know what, it's a cultural thing. And the more we push and challenge Scripture, it's considered a sign of increased intellect. But the Bible says that the fear or respect of God is the beginning of wisdom. So when I take God's word and I take it and say, God said it, I believe it, I will do it, God says, you're on the track to wisdom, Chuck. The track to wisdom is not found in challenging God. The track to wisdom is found in respecting and obeying God. Now, I'm not saying that we can't come to God and say, God, I'm struggling with this, and I want you to explain it to me. Come now and let us reason together. Amen? God knows if you're, I would assume that many of you have said, God, that doesn't make sense, and I'm struggling with that. That's okay. But when we come across as if we know more, and we're more intelligent, we're not on the track to wisdom. We're actually going the opposite direction. The fool, the Bible says, has said in his heart, there is no God. So first thing here, first part of the message. Remember, Message number one, what we're looking at today is a call to action. The first part of the message is fear God. Respect Him. Obey God. Acknowledge who God is, if I can say this again, and who we are. This is the foundation of Christianity. Let's look at our next part of our message. Now back to Revelation chapter 14. Fear God and do what? Give glory to Him. How does one give glory to God? 
Now there's, uh, I smile when I say this. I remember when I first went to college, I went to a Bible training school, and I think it was within the first week or two, I heard a sermon on what it means to give glory to God. Uh, it was something that we heard a lot. And um, so I'm smiling when I'm asking this question, saying, man, I've been talking about this or hearing about it for about 30 years now. Are you ready? What does it mean to give glory to God? Let's look at some basics. John chapter 15 and verse 8. John chapter 15 and verse 8. So the guy who wrote Revelation was John. And so John also, obviously, has written John. John chapter 15 and verse 8. Jesus says these words. And again, we're looking, what does it mean to give glory to God? He says, by this is my Father glorified that you bear much what? Much fruit. So you will be my disciples. So one way that we bring glory to God is by bearing Christian fruit. What's Christian fruit? Mangoes. Hawaiian papayas, the small one. Now that is Christian fruit. Right? What is Christian fruit? Where should I go in the Bible if I want to find out what Christian fruit is? That's right, Galatians chapter 5. And uh, we will go there just for the sake of looking at it. Galatians chapter 5 and starting with verse 22. You know what I like? I love sharing with you all here at Cape Cod because if I ever forgot where something was at, I could just say, where is it found? And someone's going to tell me. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22 says this. But the fruit of the Spirit is, how many of you know this song from camp meeting in juniors? I just learned it this year, so I don't know it well enough to sing it to you, but some of your juniors, you can ask them. Um, I forgive you for how it starts. Okay, anyhow, Galatians 5.22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. This is the fruit of the Spirit. So when the Bible says you glorify God by bearing fruit, this is the fruit that brings glory to God. I would assume that the opposite fruit does not. Hatred. Fear. Strife. Impatience. Meanness. Just general evil. Doubt. Roughness doing whatever you feel like whenever you want. God is asking for this. And so when I look at this, I, get, I don't know about you, but sometimes I look at this list, I get a little depressed. <laughs> because I look at who I am and say, God, this isn't natural for Chuck Holtry. The second list is more natural. But this list, the one that's spelled out in the Bible here in Galatians chapter 5, that's not natural. But you know who it is natural for? God. It's natural for God. And it's natural for the Holy Spirit. And the Bible says that God will give us His Spirit. And so I claim it. 
God, I don't see me as what you wish, but I know you can do in me what you wish. I rest in you. If I look at myself, I get depressed. I look at God and I'm blessed, amen? Without stress. I'm trying to get the letterhead for the Cape Cod Church. It's beautiful. If you haven't seen it, you need to. All right. So we're going to. Giving glory to God comes by bearing Christian fruit. There's another two, and these are both found in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. I look at the first one, and then 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and starting with verse 19. Here's another way for us to understand this idea of glory. So when I fear God, I'm respecting him. I reverence him, right? I obey him. He is, he's, he's not like me, even though he loves me and he's my father. Now being glorious, the bear fruit. I can't do that, so it's the Holy Spirit in my life, right? What else do I see here? Chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Well, that makes sense. The Holy Spirit in you, that's where the fruits of the Spirit. Your body is that temple whom you have from God, and you are not your own. Then verse 20 says this, Therefore, for you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You know, uh, at Bayberry, this year, I'm looking at some of you. I'm having the privilege of having history class with you. And we've just recently talked about slavery. Right? Uh, we were discussing the founding of the colonial period and the southern colonies had slavery as part of them, right? And so we're looking at some of these details as we're going through. And people were bought and sold. This is interesting. It says that God bought us. He bought us. If God bought us, then that means we were owned by someone. Does that make sense? Many of us have thought that we are in free and independent beings. But Satan and sin have taken control of us, and we are owned by them until God comes and brings us freedom by buying us. And then when he buys us, he says this, hey, you belong to me. Not you belong to me like, come here now, my. No, you belong to me. I paid for you. I love you. You belong to me. Does that make sense? And he's asking us to glorify him in our bodies. Why? Because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the only way you and I could glorify God, by the way, is by the Holy Spirit in us. And then 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31. Just going to touch on it for one key element. 1 Corinthians 10, 31 says, Therefore, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do how much to the glory of God? Do all. Christians who bring glory to God are wholehearted in their service to God. It's not one day a week. It's not three hours on that one day a week. Those who give glory to God are all day long, every day, every year. That seems kind of dramatic. Well, think about it this way. Um... Recently, we've seen a, a wedding here in our church. We're glad you're here. Didn't mean to call you out, just thought I would, though. Okay? 
And this afternoon, I will be participating in another wedding at the Harmony Church. And tomorrow morning, another wedding. It is, it is wedding time. And you would never expect the husband to look at, excuse me, the husband-to-be, to look at his wife-to-be and say, Honey, I pledge myself to you 364 days a year. One day a week is for Alice. I mean, one day a year is for Alice, but the rest of the year is for you. Would that work? Any ladies want to jump in that kind of engagement? There's no way. That's not fair. That's not right. You expect 365 days because you love. And so God also wants that from us. Fairly so. By the way, He'll give you 365 days a year, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Never at one moment is God not attentively connected with you. We have an awesome God. All right. Fear God. Give glory to him. And uh, we will finish. For the hour of his judgment has come. That's the next part in Revelation chapter 14. For the hour of his judgment has come. Come. Now, Revelation chapter 14 mentions judgment. Judgment in the Bible is not terribly unlike the judgment we see in our world today. There are several phases of the judgment. Um, I promise you, I will not give you a dissertation on law. Just, just quick. You have investigation. You have deliberation. You have sentencing. You have the execution of sentence. Um, I tell you what, judgment is, is rough stuff. This year was my first time being in court uh, with someone else. And uh, spent the day praying for them. I was in the lobby. They were in the courtroom back and forth in talking to lawyers. And then at one point, uh, the lawyer came out and said, uh, Pastor Holtree, are you willing to be a character reference and come in and testify for this person? I said, sure. I had no idea what I was saying. I was, yeah, sure, no problem. What's a court, you know? Um, and as I went in and testified, I realized that prosecuting attorneys chew you up and spit you out. I had no idea of the aggressiveness. I couldn't say anything. I thought I had something to say. <laughs> then I got in there and I had nothing to say. Uh, for me, I now, someone asked me to testify. That's eh, okay, you can I write a letter? No, I would, for you all. But I would like to say, it's, it's not an easy experience, right? And so when we think of judgment in the Bible, it's not a time that we often think about it in a positive way, but I'd like to share a few thoughts here. In the Bible, when we look at judgment, oftentimes we think of judgment as receiving a reward. Stand before the throne of God, just, unjust, here, you got your reward, you got your reward, Right? But in the Bible, there's more than just the execution of sentence in the sentencing stage. There is also the investigation stage throughout the entire Bible. Um, I, I won't have you turn there, but in the book of Genesis, I'll tell you where it's at, so if you're taking notes, Genesis chapter 18, verse 20 and 21, God is speaking to Abraham about going down to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, I am going down there to see if things are as bad as what I've heard. And we always, I smile when I hear this. Of course God knows. But he was going through the investigation process for the humans. I'm going down to see if it's as bad as what I've heard. 
Revelation, not Revelation, but Psalm chapter 14, verse 2 is another one. Psalm 14, verse 2 says, The Lord looks down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any who understand, who seek God. He's looking, investigating, if you will. Um, And the Greek in Revelation, we have two words that are being used, at least two words are being used for judgment. One is krisis, and the other is krima. One, krisis, deals primarily with the action of judging, and krima deals primarily with the result of that action. So two things. Krisis, the action of judging, and krima, the result of that action. Those are two things. And the word that's being used here in Revelation 14 is not the result. It's dealing with the action of judging, the investigation, if you will. I like the, that's why you see this phrase here, Revelation 14, verse 7. For the hour of his judgment, what's that next word? Has or is come, depending what translation you have. But it doesn't say will come. What it's saying is it's currently started and continuing on. That means that we currently are living in a time of judgment and it's continuing on. That's when this message is given. We are living in that kind of time. Um, That makes this next part clear. I'd like to share two more verses in this and then we'll go to our final section here. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And starting with verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12, starting with verse 13, and then we're going to go to a passage in Isaiah. Ecclesiastes 12, verse 13 says this, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Here's the big picture. This is it. After everything I've said and all my wisdom, I'm stopping with this. Fear God. Wait, haven't we heard that somewhere? And keep his commandments, for this is man's all. Or as it says in the King James Version, for this is the whole duty of man. Then verse 14, for God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. Secrets. Everyone has them. Am I right? Something you don't want anyone else to know. You're hoping that no one has any idea. And if you're a young person, please know that your parents have been there before and they're just looking at you as smiling, letting you think that you have a secret. I just said that on my kids recently. I just smiled and said, mm-hmm. Anyhow. God brings every secret thing. We adults are better at keeping our secrets than when we were five or six, am I right? We know how to cover them up, put plaster, and no one can see it, repaint it, right? Brand new, never see it. But everyone has secrets, and the Bible says every secret thing will be revealed in judgment. Talk about, I'm not shaking, but I should be. Does that make sense? then what hope do you and I have? 
Because see, God doesn't do judgment by saying, okay, here's the scale. Good, bad. I was just listening to a sermon on this week. A friend of mine was giving it. If you got more good, yeah, you'll make out. But if you have more bad, mm-mm-mm, hot place for you. And that's the thought process of a lot of people when it comes to judgment. But the Bible says that the wages of sin is what? So if I have tons of good and yet there's still sin, I don't have a chance. So don't take it personal, but no, you have a chance. We don't. Accept. Yes, 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 yeah. Don't, don't stop the sentence there, right, Theo? Could you please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 54? Isaiah 54. And then we will come to our final section. Isaiah chapter 54 and verse 17. I love this, please, friends. If you don't have this as a favorite text, put it in that favorite list, right? No weapon formed against you shall prosper. And every tongue which rises against you in what? Judgment you shall condemn. By the way, could someone rise up against you in judgment? Could some tongue say about the secret that's going in your life? The Holy Spirit could. It says this. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. That means I can stand in the judgment with all my secret baggage. And it says here, if I'm God's servant, I can stand and not have condemnation. But then it clarifies why. The end of the verse says, and their righteousness is from me. You can't stand in your own righteousness because it isn't righteous enough. But you and I can stand in God's righteousness without fear. If you have not accepted him in your life, if you have not accepted his righteousness for you, please do it without delay. We can stand with him. The last section of Revelation chapter 14 and verse 6, verse 7, sorry, is this. And worship him who made heaven and the earth and the seas and the fountains of waters. Call to action. Simple, fear God. Number one, reverence, respect him. Number two, give glory to him, right? Bear fruit, spiritual fruit with all that we have. And this last one is worship him who made heaven, earth, the seas, and the fountains of waters. Very, very interesting. Um, this is the same exact wording as a passage that's found in the Old Testament. Revelation 14, verse 7 is almost directly quoting, almost directly quoting Gen- Exodus chapter 20, verse 11. And this is um, a famous commandment in the Ten Commandments. So the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commands of God, which he spoke with his own voice, wrote with his own finger on two tables of stone, Exodus chapter 20. If you ever want to get a section of the Bible that is like unadulterated, Exodus chapter 20 is the words of God directly to a whole nation of people. And you know them. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image. 
right? Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain. And when we come to verse 8, it says this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant nor your female servant nor your cattle nor your stranger who is within your gates. And then here's the passage that's identical to Revelation chapter 14. Almost identical. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that in them is and rested the seventh day. Then he goes on to say this, wherefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. And a world that's increasingly promoting evolution. Calling it a fact when it is only a theory. The call to worship the creator is a reminder that the Bible is true, is accurate, and can be trusted. The philosophy and logic of our world cannot be our foundation. God's word must be our foundation. Also, because this message is so closely connected with the fourth commandment, it's also a call to honor our creator God by worshiping him on the day he asked us to worship him, which is the seventh day Sabbath. Think about it. It's so important that God is sending a worldwide message to let the world know what are the key issues in the end of time. Revelation 13, there's this big strife. We looked at it last year. Revelation 13, big strife. All the world wonders after the beast. They, they, they do whatever he says. And if you don't do what he says, uh, you get his mark. If you do what he does, you get a mark. If you do what God says, you get something called a seal. And we've looked at this before. The issue in the end of time is not a denial of worshiping. It is an issue of who is worshipped. See, everybody has a choice. Worship a pseudo-Christian religious system on a man-made day or worship the Creator on the day that He blessed and sanctified. On one side is a pseudo-Christian system that's so popular and or powerful that the whole world follows. On the other hand is only the Lord, sovereign God of the universe, who is appealing to everyone to reject falsehood and give their allegiance to Him. Simple, not a conflict. What would you say to those who you love if you knew something terrible was about to happen and you only had a little message to give. Well, this is what God is saying to us. He knows that the end of our world won't be pleasant. He knows what he prepared for us is beyond our wildest, joyous imaginings. But he knows in that title phrase, he needs to give us some advice. And this is the advice of God for now. A call to action. That's what we're looking at this week. Next time, we'll be looking at a declaration and a warning. Not quite as pretty, but God is calling us to know these things, especially for the time we're living in. The climax of God's world's here. I don't believe it's too far off, but I do know this. God loves you. God loves me. He created us. He didn't say, and let there be 
man and pop. Let there be woman, pop. He actually intimately got involved with creating the body of Adam and then later the body of Eve. Why? Because he loves us with all that he is. And so the call in the end is to worship him, to allow him to have us again. That's my call for you today. Would you let the creator God have you? All that you are. I want to do that. Amen. Our Father in heaven, we want to know you this well, that all we have is yours, because all you are you've given to us. And Father, we want to ask that you'll give us courage to share a message, a glorious message, of the love of Jesus, his soon coming. We ask for strength, courage, and Father, your love in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.